Hello and welcome back to season two of Alan and Ovary's launch, this time recorded remotely. My name is Bianca Vasilake, and I will be your host on the podcast for demystifying the process of getting into law and exploring both the opportunities you will have in your legal career and, of course, what that career might take you. Today's episode is Partnership 102, Becoming a New Type of Partner. And in order to share her more unconventional journey to partnership, I have with me Shuti Ajitsarya, our advanced delivery partner and head of Fuse, the tech innovation space at ANO. Before that, though, she was a counsel in the Derivatives and Structured Finance Group, or as more commonly known at ANO, DSF. Thank you so much for joining me, Shruti. Thanks, Bianca. I'm so happy to be here. And just to remind our listeners that in the last season that is available both on iTunes and Podbean, in episode three, we discussed the traditional route to partnership, which is through a fee-earning role. And we did so with Wilson Mango Turner. We call that Partnership 101, which means that you are involved in the firm's legal work and bringing in and managing new clients and transactions. However, as you have proven, there is also another route to partnership or as we called it in this episode, Partnership 102. So I think the first question is, what does it mean to be an advanced delivery partner? And how does it differ from, or how is it similar to a traditional partner role? Thanks, Bianca. So I think it's very clear to me what the contrast would have been had I have become a partner in the DSF practice versus my role being the head of FUSE and a partner in the advanced delivery practice. And I think being a partner in a fee earning capacity means that you have a target that you are trying to reach, you have a set of clients for whom you're trying to do work, and you will basically be developing those relationships, trying to be proactive, but effectively bringing in deals and hoping that by the end of the year, your number of deals are stacked up to where you would like it ideally to be. And I think the difference with advanced delivery is it just gives you a slight freedom to approach the role from a slightly different direction and to try to understand the bigger piece and the bigger picture. So to say, okay, as a legal function, you are trying to evolve in this particular way. You're trying to slim down the number of law firms that you work with. You're trying to use automation. Perhaps you're trying to outsource some of your work. And in understanding the firm better and understanding the legal department better, I think we're able to be a more cohesive firm for that client. That's very interesting. So just taking a few steps back to when you were counsel in uh, DSF, what prompted the idea of Fuse and how did you go about making it happen? Because at the time, law firms did not have tech innovation spaces. I mean, I know now most law firms do, but at the time it was something completely novel. So I think I was very lucky in the sense that I'd been in derivatives for a very long time and always loved it. But on the side in my spare time, I'd been investing in small companies. So one small company that I made an investment into on a Sunday night was a legal tech company whose idea it was to negotiate ISDA master agreements through a platform. The idea being that if you ever had a situation where Lehman went bust again, rather than having lots of trainees and junior associates going through the computer files and going through the paper files and checking what the latest version is and the signed version was and looking at what a notice period might be and just very manual processes that you would be able to at the click of a button say for this particular entity this is what the clause 
that has been negotiated is across its entire portfolio. And having worked on the Lehman disaster, it was quite, it was really hard as an associate, genuinely really time consuming. It wasn't very easy work because you were trying to look in paper files and compare them to documents on the screen. And it wasn't particularly intelligent work so much as it was very pressured and very, very laborious. And so I just thought it was a really brilliant idea and I invested in it. But What really struck me was that we had lots of companies like that, which were starting to actually make some quite decent strides that we as a law firm had no real way of connecting with because a company like that wouldn't know a lawyer really in the derivatives group to approach. And it's not really anyone in derivatives' remit to be responsible for identifying new technologies that are relevant to their area and also I suppose as a derivatives partner how on earth would you know good from bad and how would you know you know if it meets the technological requirements you would need it to so the idea of Fuse really was to find companies like this and companies that were hyper relevant to Allen Overy regardless of which stage of development they were at and to create an ecosystem within A&O that allowed our lawyers just free access to come and see what was going on to understand what products were available to help those products develop in a way that was helpful to us and hopefully to create a culture of proactivity and proactive use of different types of solutions on deals to create efficiencies and accuracy. And I was very, very lucky, I think, that I had gone on maternity leave. It was my third maternity leave, so I'd had two babies already. I kind of knew that I could do other stuff at the same time as had a baby if I really put my mind to it. And I did a course at Google Campus, so I did startup school at Google Campus. And from there, I wrote a business plan, and I was very lucky that it all kind of coincided with Wim, who's our senior partner, having had a very similar idea at the same time. So I was really privileged to be brought in at a really early stage and I think very lucky and I think this says absolutely tons about our culture but I really felt that even though I was a counsellor at the time, I was really listened to and my ideas were taken on board and I had an opportunity to present what I thought would make a really good innovation space and I was amazed really that the Allen & Overy board approved it and very, very quickly thereafter we were open. How long did it take between the time of the approval and when the first cohort came in? And what steps did you need to take to put in place the whole framework for that? Yeah, I think from approval to opening, we were open within six months. And I mean, that, yeah, it includes appointing an architect, knocking down space, building a new space, building a selection process from complete scratch, choosing some good companies understanding what our program was going to be like and making sure that we were going to have internal buy-in. So there was a lot of work to be done, but I just thought it was really great, actually, because so many people really pulled together to make it all happen on time. And I know that for a period of time, you actually had a double role and you were doing both your fearing job in the derivatives group and also focusing on Fuse. So when did you decide to transition to fully focusing on Fuse and how easy or difficult that transition was? I'd like to think it was easy because (laughs) suddenly you went from two jobs to one. Yeah, it was quite difficult, actually. Um, I'd come back from maternity leave, and I work part-time anyway, so I'd come back from maternity leave. I was meant to be working three and a half days a week, and I was still doing derivatives, but sort of meanwhile in the background developing a business plan and having meetings with an architect and looking at spaces, and it was all very, very time-consuming at a point in time in my life when 
I had a brand new baby at home and two other children who had just had me at home for a whole year and were wondering where on earth I disappeared to. So it was actually a really difficult time. And I think there's a misconception actually within A&O and beyond that I was really relieved and happy to go and do Fuse because in some way I was escaping derivatives. And weirdly, the complete opposite is true. I have honestly always said, and it really is true, derivatives was just the love of my life. I loved derivatives. I loved credit derivatives. I found it absolutely fascinating. I loved the work. I liked the clients. I was so privileged to be a part of that team. And I genuinely to this day still, if I happen to be hanging around in David Benton's room and there's a derivatives <laughs> document on his desk, will be interested enough to want to pick it up, take it home and read it. You know, I wasn't trying to escape derivatives at all. It's just that I really thought this would be to the benefit of the whole firm. And I also really felt that given my experience in the startup world, that I was the best placed person to do it. Yeah. So it was actually with real sadness that I kind of moved from derivatives into Fuse. And I did that just as Fuse was opening its doors. So for quite a long time, I was doing both jobs, which I really did find very difficult. I don't even know how it's possible also working part-time. Were you able to work part-time and still do both of them? I think one of the nicest things about my experience at A&O, to be honest, is the people that I've worked with and for in particular have always been actually quite supportive of my part-time working arrangement in a way that you might not necessarily expect from a law firm. And so I, at some point in my career, have worked three days a week. I now work three and a half days a week. So I got made a partner working three and a half days a week. And I'm absolutely not going to pretend that I only work three and a half days a week every week, because that's just not true. Most weeks I work four days a week and I'm genuinely happy to do it because I've just set up my life in such a way that I'm happy to have the flex if I can take it, but understand that more often than not, I I won't be able to. Um, But I think the bit that helped when I was trying to do both jobs with the people around me, so the person that I worked for was genuinely very understanding. And if I wasn't in on a Friday and there was derivatives, things to be picked up, I would never get a call to say, Shruti, can you look at this bit of thing that's not really for a partner to look at he would find somebody else to do it and reallocate it and he was very practical about understanding that if someone wants to work part-time and that's their arrangement and they've got small children at home it is really difficult genuinely hard to do any work when you have three small kids in the same space as you and it always felt that that was respected as best it can be in a law firm so I think that really helped. That's really great to know I've always felt that at the firm generally when people are on holiday or they work part-time I feel like the team makes their best effort just to make sure that they respect that which I think is very important and just speaking of disruption Fuse has been a very successful initiative and now several law firms have developed tech innovation spaces or different variants of tech innovation spaces so I was wondering if you could tell us what sets Fuse apart And what are some examples of legal tech that originated in Fuse and has been adopted by the firm? Sure. I think what sets us apart is that this isn't an initiative by Shruti Ajitsaria for a select number of people. This is an initiative by Alan Overy for the whole firm globally. And I really do feel that. I really do feel that everybody is aware that it's open to them, that they should be able to find something in Fuse that they connect with. And actually, when we select the Fuse cohort, one of the hardest parts of my job is to try and find eight to 10 companies that I think everybody will find something in. So Bianca, you may come to Fuse, 
and you may only interest, be interested in one or two companies and the person that you work with may come and be interested in something else. And so w- what I need to make sure of is regardless of if you are a trainee or the senior partner and regardless of if you are in real estate, employment, corporate, banking, capital markets, and regardless of if you sit in London or Singapore, there will be at least one company infused that you genuinely can look at and think, wouldn't this be brilliant? I'm so interested in this. I would like to do something with this tech company because I think that's what sets us apart is that it is for everybody. And originally, you know, we very much thought that there would be internal buying and people would be interested. But the bit that I think we underestimated, to be honest, was the client interest. And what has been amazing to see is, A, how many partners refer their clients to Fuse because I think that's a real stamp of approval. It shows a real kind of a belief in what we're doing. But secondly, how many clients are genuinely so interested to engage with what we're doing and to understand more about how Alan Overy is operating in this area? Yeah. And what are some examples of the legal tech that has been developed in Fuse and has been adopted by the firm? Because many times people say that, you know, lawyers and adoption of legal tech are not necessarily on the same page. So I I think a few examples would be helpful. Yeah, I have the opposite experience, which is actually a really nice problem to have. That In a way, we almost have like over-enthusiasm of people desperate to use loads of really cool bits of tech, and I love that. So some concrete examples are from Fuse Cohort 1. We had Avoca, which we now have a license with and which we're working on a really exciting automation project with the LMA on. And similarly, we've got Legatics, which helps with making conditions precedent in banking transactions easier to manage and just much more transparent process and we adopted them ages ago and I think almost every time I look at a usage chart it's kind of going up and up and up and up so we're really making good traction with the use of legatics. Most recently we've taken a license with Define who were in the third Fuse cohort and again this is a company which sort of solves a very simple problem which is that of reading long documents and understanding what a definition on page 105 means when your definition section is all on page six to 30. And the thing I like about Define is it was a really simple, really simple piece of technology in the sense that it just does a very simple thing. But the thing that it does is a problem that almost as lawyers, none of us knew we had. But as soon as a lawyer puts it on their screen, especially now that we're working from home and you can't print off long documents quite as easily, if you're on page 150 and you want to know what the definition of, I don't know, the secured assets means you can just click on it and it can come on in a split screen next to you and if you have if the secured assets definition has multiple definitions within that phrase you can click on any of them and it will build you a breadcrumb trail so you can really understand the clause whilst not moving the context that you're in and i think that is super simple but very 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 helpful and i think the thing to note that also sets views apart is in adopting technologies like Avoca, Legatics and Define, we have had to make some really brave decisions. So these are all very early stage companies. They're, they're all quite new. And we've had to look at how we onboard companies and say, well, is it realistic to expect them to have X, Y, Z? Do we really need them to have X, Y, Z? And we've built a really strong relationship with these companies that allows us to understand where we can have a bit more give and take so that we can enter into these commercial arrangements. So I've been really pleased, actually, with the number of companies that we've been able to license. Yeah. Despite the growing importance of legal tech, though, it is not very common to have a partner dedicated to advanced delivery and legal tech. 
So when did you first think that your role as head of Fuse was also eligible for partnership and what steps did you take to pursue it? I mean, this is another reason why I feel very privileged to be at Allen & Overy. And I think it helps, if I'm completely honest, I think it really helps that I had been in derivatives for so long and that I was a counsellor. How long had you been in? I joined a in 2002. And so I qualified into derivatives in, it wasn't even DSF then, it was derivatives in 2004. So I really had been there for a very, very long time. But the reason I think a is so special actually is because I was at a partners conference. So Fuse had launched and I was a counsellor and I was the head of Fuse. I'd been invited along to the partners conference in Miami just to sort of see really what the strategy was with respect to advanced delivery more generally. And I think actually just as a nice gesture. And whilst I was at the conference, a few people separately came up to me and said, Shruti, can I have a word? Can we, can we have a chat? And a couple of really great partners said, you know, I really think you should be a partner. And I just wanted you to know you have my support and let me know what you need and how we can help progress this. And they'll remain nameless for this, but they had absolutely no reason mm-hmm. to do it other than just being brilliant partners, I think, and really understanding that without that sort of push, I'm not sure that I really would have raised it myself. And then it helped, I think, that Wim was hugely supportive of Fuse and the idea in the first place. And that as a firm, we've always been kind of brave enough to take a risk and do things differently and to value things that maybe other firms don't value in the same way. So that's how the partnership conversation started. And then from there, it moved pretty quickly. Were there any key challenges that you had to overcome? And if so, how did you go about them? I think the first key challenge was writing my partnership paper. (laughs) Just because, I mean, actually what you could see from this is every other partner that had ever come before me had an opportunity to have a load of precedents from the department and change a few things that made it relevant to their practice group. But they had like a really good base and you have things that they are looking for. So how much did you generate last year? Who are your key clients? And all of the questions that you would ask for earning partner didn't really apply to me so I think the first challenge really was reframing the question as to what I was going to deliver as a partner and how I planned to do it and what I thought was important and what I hoped that the firm also thought was important so I think the challenge really was just trying to get myself to think differently and also trying to get others to think differently and for everybody really to value skills which maybe in other places wouldn't be quite so valued. And you became Advanced Delivery Partner in 2019. So how has your role changed since then? And do you think there is scope for growth for this kind of role in the firm? So in terms of how my role has changed, I think it's really nice to be a partner and to participate in the sorts of discussions that you would do as a partner and to feel that you have ownership of the business and a hand in directing the strategy and a voice. So for me, it was very personal actually being a partner. It was really about feeling that I had some sort of ownership over this firm that I was investing so much time into. And the other thing that I've loved, I suppose, about being an advanced delivery partner is it's kind of created a new community for me. So whereas I was always part of the DSF community, and I hope that I will always be part of the DSF community, it's actually very nice to also have advanced delivery partners to ask questions of or to work and collaborate with. So that has been sort of a real joy, just getting to know people that maybe otherwise I wouldn't have done. 
In terms of other law firms, I mean, we get asked quite a lot, really, why other law firms haven't got a Fuse or an exact version of Fuse. I don't think it does come down to me or the head of Fuse or even our management. I think it comes down to the whole firm. And that is in part driven by management. But I do think it comes down to the culture of the firm, which in my experience has always been one of a willingness to listen and an entrepreneurial spirit and letting people shine. And I do think it's really rare. If you think, I was literally a derivatives counsel. I'd just come back from maternity leave. There is no reason why they should have put me in charge as head of Fuse. There's no reason why anyone should have believed that I could do it. I mean, you did have the experience. Well, except for the fact that I was going to say, except for the fact that I demonstrated that I had a real interest and a real passion and I had some ideas about how I was going to do it. But I think in many law firms that wouldn't have been enough. And I think in many more hierarchical places, they would have felt that they needed to put a partner in charge and then they needed a particular kind of a person in charge. I think that's one of the real strengths of A&O, which is whoever you are, whatever your level, if you have an idea and it's a good one and you can prove that you will be able to deliver it, for the most part, you are allowed to do it. And Bianca, I think you presented, was it last week? Yeah, or this it was week's? earlier this week. Yeah, yeah, it was this week. I'm losing track of time, yeah. but it was this week's I2 panel. I love the fact that we have a panel which says the whole firm, anyone, do you have an idea that you would like to evolve? And if so, come and present it to a panel. And assuming it's a good idea, we will give you resource and we will give you help and we will support you to take this idea forward. And I really love that about ANO. I was actually going to mention exactly that. And I think I, I mentioned it in a previous episode as well. I essentially had just come back from secondment. I had this idea, spoke with the IT team and they were just like, yeah, sure. Sounds like a good idea. We can try it. It was pretty amazing because I was only a trainee. And to be fair, this podcast came about in the same way. I just spoke to graduate recruitment and they thought, yeah, that sounds cool. We'll give you the resources and we can give it a shot. So, Having never worked yeah. anywhere else, it's difficult for me to say, but I really feel that if you have an idea and you demonstrate that you've got the skills to take it forward, you are for the most part let to do it, which I think is great. So what advice do you have for aspiring and existing lawyers interested in legal tech, but unsure how to pursue this passion? Well, if you're Alan Overy, I would say send me an email. <laughs> um, <laughs> send me an email or let me know if you're interested in any of the Fuse companies. But otherwise, there is a wealth of knowledge. You know, when we first started it, I remember so clearly we did a big conference for all our relationship firms, so all our international network, like about two weeks after Fuse opened. And one of the slots at that was, this is Fuse, this is what we're doing at Alan Overy. And everybody looked at me like Alan and Overy had just lost their mind. And the question we got was, just why is A&O doing this? How are you going to make money? You know, what's the KPIs? We don't understand it. It makes no sense. And fast forward three years, so many other law firms have done a sort of a similar version of it, which means that there are a lot of places that you can go for resources. So there's conferences. So Legal Geek in October are doing a conference, which I think is free to attend. There are so many different companies. You can get internships with legal tech companies fairly easily because they're all desperate for resource. You can do lots of different courses. There are loads of courses available. Governments looking at a legal tech education course. You can sign up to podcasts like this. And I think when I was looking at it, there was none of that. So I think if you today are interested, there are so many places to look to find stuff. But the best thing that you can do is to give a few tools a try and be open-minded and not to expect everything to be the finished perfect article, but rather to acknowledge that you will have a part to play in making a piece of technology better or more suited to your purpose. 
I think this is all incredibly helpful. And thank you so much for answering all of these questions. And just to finish off on a light note, in this season of the podcast, at the end of every episode, we have a game of two truths and a lie. And this being the last episode of the season, actually, no pressure, but they have to be pretty good. <laughs> okay. So are you going to tell me which ones you think are the truths and the lie, Bianca? Yeah, you're not yeah. going to embarrass yourself in that way. Okay. So, <laughs> so you're going to tell me, I'm going to ask a few questions and then okay. I'm going to try to guess. Okay. All right. So the first statement, get ready. I'm yeah. vegetarian, but I eat gravy and prawn crackers. <laughs> okay. I'm going to give you the second one. Okay. I think, was it two years ago I was on a TV program called Million Pound Menu, which is now on Netflix. And the last one is you talked at the beginning of this podcast about a previous podcast featuring the partner, Will Smengo-Turner, who actually made partner the exact same year as me. Will was my trainee. Oh my God, there are so many questions. Okay, so first off, I want to ask about the show. How did this come about? How did you get on the show? Yeah, it came, came about because I love to eat food. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also because one of the investments that I had made a very long time ago was into the restaurant business. So I was contacted by the show's producers when they were making it um, to see if I wanted to participate. And compared to everybody else in that show, I knew absolutely nothing. But it was just <laughs> one of those things that I loved doing. I learned so, so much and it was really good fun. Okay. I think this is true because I think I saw it. I don't think I saw the episode, but I think I read an article about the episode. Okay. About Will having been your trainee, Will is a corporate I know you partner. Find, I know you find that hard to believe, Bianca, because, you know, Will does because not Because he looks look, so youthful. Yeah, exactly. Thank and you. I, I, I just, just can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you find him as a trainee how senior were you when he was your trainee actually oh I think I was probably about four or five years qualified and Will as a trainee was the exact same person as Will is as a partner which is terribly polite ever so posh just <laughs> completely charming and lovely and brilliant and then the first one about you being a vegetarian and yet uh, enjoying the pork chips. How come you became a vegetarian? I thought it was, I because I thought it was really cool, actually. I just thought it was a cool thing to do. My big sister had become vegetarian. I was 11 years old. I just thought it was really cool. And then at my school, they didn't have anything vegetarian. So I had minestrone cup of soup and bread roll and butter every day for lunch for a whole year. Are you still a vegetarian? I am still a vegetarian. So why the pork? Oh, How can crackers. you call yourself a vegetarian and yet have that guilty pleasure? I know, it's such a, that's exactly how I'd categorise it. It's guilty pleasure, Bianca. <laughs> okay, this is very difficult. I'm very torn because with Will, based on why you said the timeline seems to work, which is, makes it very difficult. But I look so young, Bianca. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it would be an insult if you tell me that you thought Will was my trainee. Would it, though? No, it wouldn't Because really. it would actually be a compliment. It would be, you look so youthful, and it's very impressive. <laughs> um, okay, so I would say that the lie is... Actually, I do, maybe the lie is that Will was your trainee. 
well, you know how I have a reputation for never, ever doing what I was told. You asked me to give you two truths and a lie. And in was fact, it three truths? I've given you three truths, Bianca, <laughs> just to finish your podcast on a real, real beam of excitement just, there. The mind bender. <laughs> for all the listeners, this is how you really end a This season, is true right? disruption. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I disrupted your podcast, Bianca. Will you well, ever ask I, me back? I'm very happy to have it disrupted because if there's a season three it would have to be a different game so i think the ending of this game had to be memorable (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry to have done that to you i think it was great i i think all the truth are so amazing though i still can't (laughs) believe will is your trainee (laughs) Uh yeah it was really good fun Oh, awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining. I think your insights are incredibly helpful for anyone just looking into a legal role, looking into legal tech. So thank you so much for taking the time and for being so open about everything. Thanks, Bianca. It's always really, really nice to see you. I have to say you have always been very helpful to Fuse and been a real friend of Fuse and you're always having ideas and you've helped me on like lots of things. So it's like just lovely to see your face. Oh, thank you. And this brings us to the end of season two. We're very glad that so many of you have found this helpful. And as usual, please follow us on social media, check out our graduate recruitment website for more information. But most importantly of all, thank you all so much for listening.